Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Hello to you in the last episode of this month, and the last episode of our Gulag series, the Gulag KGB series to be more exact, because we will move away from the Gulags this time, as this episode is intended to be sort of a, I don't know, wrap-up episode, so to speak. I'm a bit confused here, because uh, a lot of subjects to talk about, and... A lot of conclusions to draw, actually. Not a simple episode to make, as usual, but this series has to end, and I want to end it on a, on a philosophical note. Oh yeah, and before before we even start with that, I would like to apologize to the people who felt offended by my PDRP episode, which I published just a few days ago. If you disagree with the opinions stated there, feel free to comment, as many have done. But, so, so that you know, um... I'm a journalist. I am all for freedom of speech. I don't endorse anything going on in any of my podcasts. I just want people to think, and a lot of people have been uh, disappointed about this fact, and I've lost quite a few Patreon supporters, but I hope that, you know, this tendency will change for the better, because it was never my intention to offend anyone. (laughs) On the other hand, other people just are complaining that we apologize too much, so what do you know? Anyway, this complaining might actually be one of the things that I want to talk about. You see, to encompass all of this gulag thing, all of this KGB thing, means to talk about what does it mean for a country to live under such an oppressive regime for so many years. It leaves scars, you see, and my sense of guilt all the time for no reason, my very low self-esteem and my sense of inferiority when it comes to Westerners, which I'm trying to fight. No, I'm really trying to fight it, but it, it's still there. It's somewhere there in my in my backbone that I, I should somehow feel inferior to other people and that I should apologize that I'm always guilty. That is the result of this. And even though I lived in the Soviet Union only for a short period of time when I was a kid, uh, I was raised that way. I was I was raised by Soviet people. I was raised this way, and uh, interestingly enough, we were raised 
in this way of Soviet morality and um, and then our parent generation is also often surprised that we are not the greatest of capitalists around and that a lot of us have uh, even lower self-esteem than mine and that we have hard times achieving things in this capitalist society but you know it's hard to be a very successful person if you have been raised on essentially gulag morality you know all your childhood and that is why this episode is it's hard to explain because it's not an exact episode it's not an episode on precise dates it's an episode of influences it's an episode on it's an episode on what you become after living in the United, in the USSR. It's an episode on how you feel after it. It's an episode on how a PTSD for a nation feels like. And how it must have been to like live there. Because that wasn't easy. And it was even probably harder than you imagine even if you listen to the previous episodes. And what you probably don't understand is that how people try to escape from this. So before I start about all the normalization and everything, I would like to start with um, with an act of terrorism, to be honest. I don't know, one man's terrorist, the other man's freedom fighter. In this case, one man's terrorist is another man's escape attempt, apparently. But I'm... I'm talking about uh, the Aeroflot flight number 3739, which happened in 1988, the 8th of March. See, one of the most popular Soviet planes, about which many jokes were made, which is kind of a shoddy quality, was one of these two 154 planes. Uh, Tupolev planes, but their official number is two uh, 154. Essentially, it was a flight that... Uh, had left Kurgan to Leningrad. It's, an, it's basically a domestic flight with, within the Soviet region. And it was hijacked by this family, by this group of people who wanted to escape from the Soviet Union. And these people kind of... I don't know what they thought, but apparently they were desperate because they demanded that the, the airplane fly instead of Leningrad, today St. Petersburg, they demanded that they would fly to London. The family was called Ovechkins. There were th- there were 13 of these Ovechkins in total. There was mother Nina, and she had 11 children, 7 sons and, and 4 daughters. And after her 10th kid, this Nina Ovechkina became a hero mother. You know, mother heroes. The Soviet Union awarded those mothers who had given birth to a lot of kids. And her husband, Dmitri, had died in 1984. And she was a a mother heroine. And not just because of the amount of the children, but because she was raising them by themselves. Her little, little boys, little kids, her seven, seven sons, they had started a music band. The music band was called Seven Simeons. Sim Simeonov, basically. It's kind of, it rhymes in Russian, you see. And, uh, they had managed to become very popular, actually. And they, they had been to Japan for a tour. And the picture of Sim Simeonov, these seven Simeons, will be, uh, accompanying this episode. And, uh, yeah, these people saw how life was abroad. 
they saw your way of living and um, they decided to leave the Soviet Union and settle abroad, which was not allowed by the Soviets. Well, by the late 80s, it was allowed, but even if you, only if you were like very old, 70, 75, something like that, very late after retirement. I, what I don't understand about all this case is why they just didn't escape when they were in Japan or or on some other trip. This is the most interesting part, but yeah, they, they decided to hijack um, hijack an aircraft to just kidnap it. Uh, no, not everyone, though. Uh, one, they had a daughter, Lyudmila, which uh, apparently had, had living separately for a while. She had her own apartment with her husband. She was quite separated from the family. And uh, to tell you where all this is going, she uh, ended up in a mental hospital and died a terrible alcoholic. But yeah, these Ovechkins, they entered this flight 3739 and what happened next was quite stunning because this is one of the <laughs> actually I didn't know about this event since uh, there's there's a guy you don't know he's my quality control <laughs> he also designed the logos for the show he doesn't want to be mentioned a lot. I've mentioned him on a few episodes, but he just told me about this situation and I researched it more. But yeah, thanks to Einar here. That that's that means nothing to you, but I guess... <laughs> but but be sure, Einar is now calling me and yelling at me for, <laughs> for, for telling his name on air. But these Ovechkins... This case made me think a lot. You see, they entered this airplane, right, and... Uh, they have acquired guns and have made even shotguns with them or or, or handguns. Uh, sources differ on this fact. Uh, some sources say they had sort of shotguns. Some sources say they had Makarov pistols and handguns. They hid the weapon, and you see, they they were this musical family, and they were a popular musical family. And you know, they had they had basically metallic musical instruments. You know, like like a trumpet or or a tube or something, and it automatically fails the metal detector test, and they can't be checked, right? And they're too, and they the these Ovechkins said even on their previous flights where they tested these methods that uh, it's just too valuable to be put in the luggage department. I mean, what if they're very expensive and important instrument breaks? So they hid weapons. And nail bombs. And ammo bombs. Apparently they had a bomb made from 100 ammunition things banded together. I don't know, 100 bullets? It doesn't sound right. But still they had a couple of bombs. One of which was a nail bomb. They also hid some of their stuff into a double base. And some was somewhere in the tube. And essentially this... Imagine this nice family of... um, of a mother and a bunch of her family members. Not not every Ovechkin was there. Don't worry, no. But a lot of Ovechkins were there, and and some of them just decide to do this. So how and what did the Ovechkins do? 
well, everything went kind of smoothly at the beginning. You see, before la landing in this Leningrad city, near the town of Volgoda, the flight crew got handed a note through a flight attendant. You know, you, you call the flight attendant and just give them a note, casually, with your musical instruments in your hands, which are filled with guns and bombs and everything. And the note said, quote, Proceed to England. Do not descend. Otherwise, we will blow up the plane. You are under our control. And they start to panic. Meanwhile, the note is somehow handed back to these of Etchkins and they burn it in the cabin. The aircraft captain immediately transmit, transmits a silent distress signal and reports the emergency to this town of Volgoda air traffic control because obviously every remote town ever has an airport with it. So on the, on the ground, they start an operation. It was called Operation Nabat, which means uh, an alarm clock. You know, uh, alarm, alarm signal, basically. Translated literally. And it, and, and after, shortly after this, a flight attendant came, came back into, to the main hall of the airplane, and she informed the passengers that they would, instead of Leningrad, land in Finland. In the town of Kotka, to refuel, because they had an emergency, and you know they if they were about to fly to England, they needed to refuel, so they would land in in Finland for this. But the ground services, essentially the people on the ground, had told uh, the captain to land on on Soviet ground instead. Just in the military base somewhere. I, I can't really find the exact one. But to land in the Soviet military airbase. And the flight engineer obviously had, had figured this plan out and he had contacted everyone. So this this is what happened. And this is where the story gets less fun if it even was fun before. Dmitry Ovechkin, who obviously was one of the people hijacking the plane being of the family and of the band. He killed this flight attendant. He shot her. And as the plane kind of came down, they they sent in armed Spetsnaz soldiers. Armed, armored, well-trained Spetsnaz soldiers to storm the plane. And, and five of them stormed up on the front but the thing is, they didn't storm the plane the usual way, no, no, no. They started by blasting their, their guns straight into the where the pilots seat in, in the front of the plane. And the second group, meanwhile, tried to breach from, from, from behind it. So, at that moment, when, when these things started to happen, one of the Ovechkins shouted to the crew, Via the communication system, he just yelled through the plane. Командир, скажи своим не стрелять. Or, командир, скажи, командир, скажи своим, чтобы не стреляли. That, that's two different reports, which basically mean the, the, the same thing. Commander, tell your guys to not to kill our guys. 
And while this is being screamed, another of these Ovechkins, Alexander Ovechkin, he decides to fuck it. He looks at his brothers, looks at his mom, looks at his younger sisters, and says, I would rather die than live in the, the, the Soviet Union. I'd rather die. And he detonates his bomb. This, this uh, fortunately, had a limited effect, because only he died from the explosion, and uh, just a fire happened in the aircraft's tail, which was later extinguished. But seeing this, the mother, Nino Vechkina, she told Dmitri, the same guy who had killed the flight attendant who had tricked them before, she turns to Dmitri and says to him, shoot me. She also didn't want to be captured alive. None of them wanted to be captured alive. And he shot his mother. After that, he shot himself. Dmitri at the time was 24. Three other people, by the way, shot themselves too. Vasily Ovechkin, 26, shot himself. Oleg, 21, also shot himself. The other Alexander, also 19, shot himself. Six other people were on this board from the family. They survived this ordeal. Olga, Igor, Tatiana, Mikhail, Ulyana, and Sergei. They were also... Olga was 28, she was the oldest one, Sergei was 9. And, and you know, just like enough, three, three passengers, flight attendant died because she was shot by Dmitri, three passengers were killed by the guys who were trying to storm the plane. And because, and, and by the way, the other, other, 20, approximately 20 to 36 to 40 passengers were injured because of the people who stormed the plane and shot them because they just blasted through everything they could see. Some were hurt, hit by the bomb, but, but most of them were really hurt because, because the nice Spetsnaz, they didn't care. They just decided, you know, let's go in, guns blazing, screw this, blow everything up, shoot people. Fourteen of them were injured very hard and were were in need of serious operations and surgery surgery later. Igor and Olga, by the way, the the oldest guys here, Igor was seventeen, Olga was twenty-eight. These were sent to trial. They were sentenced in the very same year. They were sentenced to eight and six years in prison, respectively, by the way. Olga gave birth to her daughter Larissa when she was in prison only to be beaten to death by her boyfriend on in the year 2003. Yes, so Olga passes away in 2003. Interestingly enough, the 28-year-old flight attendant Tamara was killed by Dmitri who tried to appease them and trick them. <laughs> she got an order. She got an order of the Red Banner after her death. And thus ends the tale of Ovechkins and Shem Shemyonov, who wanted to escape 
escaped the Soviet Union so bad, they had been so fed up with the system that they tried to kidnap a plane and blow themselves up and shoot themselves rather than live in the country. It led to many deaths and was a sad incident. And of course, no one in the Soviet Union knew about this only after the collapse. The collapse, which actually happened exactly three years, almost to the day of this incident. If they had only waited for a while, they could have saved so many people. They could have not caused this trouble. Even even the very next year, 1989, was already full of turmoil. And this is perestroika that we're talking about. And this is perestroika that we're talking about. Usually perestroika is associated with some sort of, you know, liberty and Gorbachev's portrait is a very good person. Well, he cared for his people. I have to give him that. But that doesn't mean the life in the Soviet Union was good. It wasn't. Whomever tries to tell you that it was extremely good and amazing, they're lying. There are no people from wealthy countries where life is decent and nice who want to escape to other countries from their own country by capturing a plane and rather will explode and kill their own family members. You know, you had to shoot your own mother rather than be taken alive. And this incident and all this situation and all this this very idea that, you know, a family, a 19-year-old boy Okay, he's not a boy anymore, technically. He's he's an adult by that point, but still, he's just 19. Then he would shoot a flight attendant, then his own mother, and then watch everyone else die? That he would hijack a plane like this? It's insane. Because the Soviet system was insane. This is what happens when you live in a total prison environment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Why was the desperation so deep? Well, because the crimes were. The crimes are terrible and it influenced everything. I've mentioned a couple of times before that among a lot of people, the Soviet Union was just called Bajshaya Zone or the Big Zone. For those of you who played stalker games, you'll know what I'm talking about. The Big Prison. We acted like this. We were forced to do it this way. And it still is there to a point, I think. Uh, uh, I think it's there to a point to uh, for a lot of people. It explains a lot about why Eastern Europe is the way it is right now. It explains a lot about why we are, in a way, depressive and quiet and why a lot of people make darkness jokes. By the way, about jokes, you know, 
I, I scanned through my huge col- collection of political anecdotes about the Soviet Union, and there were some who are funny, but they make more sense if you put them into this global scarring perspective. Because everyone knew someone who had been deported to Siberia or sent to gulags. Everyone. So these jokes, they are slowly turning into a coping mechanism, actually. For example, there's this one that Armenia Radio gets called and asked, uh, will there be KGB under communism? And Armenia Radio answers, uh, no, no, by, by that point people will have learned to arrest themselves. And, and then there's another one which goes like this. <clears throat> a fourth TV channel has just started transmitting in the USSR. On the, fo- on the first day, a citizen sits down and starts watching the first channel. Well, there's Brezhnev and he's giving a speech. So he turns on the second channel and it's Brezhnev again and he's still doing the same speech. Then he turns on the third channel and it's the same thing as usual. Every, every channel is showing the same thing. But he has the fourth channel now so he turns on the fourth one. And there is a KGB Colonel Ivanov and he threatens him with a finger. Now, now, comrade, aren't we over-switching here? Because CTV was controlled, media was controlled, everything was controlled, and... These jokes are not funny. They are, but they're funny in this very grim, dark way, which can only be understood if you've listened to my previous punishment episodes. And then there were some which might be sort of treated as... anti-Semitic, possibly. Hebrews and Jews were... I guess that are the same people, but we're Hebrews, the political, politically correct term here in Latvia. So, whatever. These people were kind of in a lot of these political jokes, but it's because they all came from these Jewish communities, especially in Odessa. Uh, Russian Jews were responsible for most of Russian political jokes, and they were always depicted as, you know, the sneaky and cunning guys kind of playing to the stereotype, but they weren't the, the villains and, and ever, so it's it's complicated. So, um, hey, I, I can tell these jokes anyway, but I hope you, you listeners won't mind because of my own Jewish blood. So, uh, Rabinovich gets called to KGB, and he gets asked, Turns out you have a brother in Israel! Rabinovich says, But, you know, I haven't spoken with him for 30 years already. And he gets told, well, what a shame, he's fighting against imperialism and supports the policies of the Soviet Union. So, comrade, don't don't be afraid. Here you go, have some paper and a pen and start writing now. So Rabinovich just sighs and starts writing. Dear Haim, finally I have chosen the right time and place to write to you. I hope you are fine. See... They're all about living in constant fear. In constant fear and oppression and and everything. And there there's this another this final one about the fact that, you know, Stalin goes to hell and they in, in hell they just don't give him his own pit. They just throw Stalin on the feet of Karl Marx and states, Well dear Karl, here are the dividends on your capital. We hated the situation, we were scarred, we were damaged. And it changed us, it changed, changes me, and this is why, you know, this is, this is why I sound like a complete, complete amateur while doing this episode, because 
this episode demands a lot of reflection on my own part, a lot of understanding on where I stand and how this has influenced me. So, but yeah, all the society was basically criminalized. It was considered to be normal because if if you live in a gigantic prison and almost prison-like mentality about the fact that you are already, you are already a criminal, I mean. The what I mentioned in in part two of Gulag episodes, Article Fifty Eight, everyone's a criminal. Everyone is a criminal for whatever reason. They can make you guilty. So what's the point of not being an actual criminal? And this, by the way, he wasn't as strong in the late Soviet era, even like in the seventies. It was there, but it was more hidden. But all hell broke loose when those when this criminalized society hit capitalism. And I'm going to talk about this uh, in December, because we're going to start January with the um, Russian Revolution, mind you. But in December, we'll touch the early 90s, because people asked me for this. But in the 90s, everything went crazy, because imagine this scarred, criminalized society when it's where it's considered the norm to break the law, to cheat, and to bribe, and, and to smuggle things. When they hit capitalism, it was crazy. No one paid taxes anymore. In the early 90s, there was very little law going around. There wasn't no, there was no control of the law. It was complete lawlessness. Those who were in the nomenclature and upper ranks before, they were either into prison or just had timely moved their money abroad and just moved abroad themselves. And they knew how to make stuff. But there were two types of people outside this nomenclature, nomenclatura, as you would call them, who could manage quite well. First part were just, you know, the simple simple guys who were drifting along, who were just doing what's asked from them. They were the absolute majority. They were the guys who kind of got along, but they never knew how to operate capitalism. But they were just the inert masses, so to speak. They were the guys living under the oppression. And then were those, you know, so-called those who knew how to live types. You see, in the Soviet had a crimes against private people, against private property, it was terribly inefficient. I mean, yeah, sure, you can go and rob your neighbor, but it's not like your neighbor has anything, anything more than you do. Therefore, all the crimes were against the state. But in the 90s, it just turned crazy. and uh, It went wild, because now it was efficient. But in Soviet era, these these people who knew how to live, they were criminals already. Everyone's a criminal, like I said before. And uh, for starters, income without work, income without creating value, was criminally punishable. It was ex- exactly mentioned in the criminal code. So obviously, if you knew how to live properly and were one of these, you know, sneaky guys who can manage things for living without working at all was very encouraged and looked as a great thing, an awesome thing. And everyone else who had to work for their existence were, they they thought of themselves as worse people, as terrible people. Weirdly enough, uh, even though having, even having a foreign currency could lead up to death penalty in the Soviet era. A lot of people, a lot of these people who knew how to live, so to speak, were using it. So, but what could you do? 
to live this nice life, to live like you knew how to live. Well, if you didn't want to risk with this death penalty and you saved up your foreign currency for the black market deals or something very, very secret, you had two options. Either you bought and sold something to live the good life, like you were one of these people who managed to smuggle like tulips to some of friendly neighbor countries and, and you know buy cheap radios in the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, coming back to the Soviet Union. Or more likely you did some regional stuff. Okay, it's it's hard to explain this, but the usual crimes of, of the Soviet Union, how it went were like this, these these people who knew how to live, who were risked and who were criminals and who were kind of idolized by everyone else, who thought themselves as miserable guys and because everyone was oppressed. These guys lived by the fact that, you know, there was never enough anything anywhere available in the stores. Like, for example, watermelons are grown in Azerbaijan. And, and a lot of them go to army. And not, a, not enough of them, because of bureaucracy or whatever, are brought to Moscow or St. Petersburg, mostly Moscow. Very, very small amount of them get their way to Moscow, but you have a huge amount of watermelons. So the local guy stuffs up a cargo truck with them. A cargo truck, by the way, which he can't either own or rent, but he still has access to it somehow. Because he, and he's acquired some watermelons too, because for both the car and the watermelons, you know, he's either stolen them, or he has bribed someone, or inside of Kolhos, you know, he's, uh, maybe he has taught the big guy of the Kolhos, the director of the Kolhos, grandmother, or, or how to speak English, or, or, or wife, how to play piano, or something like that, you know. It was money was rarely involved, or maybe you maybe you brew such a great personal wine or vodka that you could just you know do bribes this way. So through some illegal means, you have a cargo truck and some watermelons if you stuff this there. Obviously, all of all of this is completely without papers, because you you can't just drive a truck randomly full with cargo anywhere else in the Soviet Union. Oh no, it's completely illegal. What? This is not sanctioned by the government. You could go to prison or to Gulag for many, many years for doing this. So, you know, if the cops stop you, it's either a large problem or, once again, a large sum of money. And, you know, all the prices are the regular ones. Everybody who do this obviously knew exactly how much a cop would cost. This also stuck, to, uh, stuck with us through the 90s. Oh yeah, and uh, by the way, after you've done with the cops and everything, couldn't even be legally in the marketplace selling these watermelons. So you again have to pay someone to ignore you, to just allow to park your truck in the far corner of the market, because there are no stores to whom you could sell this. You have to stand in the market all day selling watermelons from your truck. And you have to pay the right people to do this. So you sell all of this, and you go back to wherever you came from. And you have a bunch of money, which you could maybe save up, or, or, or for a car, or spend, or use on more bribes, or whatever. But if you're extra, extra smart, you don't go straight back. No, no, no. You go to the black market, and spend all the money you got from the watermelons on buying a bunch of jeans. 
and you put those in the track to take back. Or maybe, maybe if you make a completely a lot of money and you know exactly to whom get bribes, maybe even grab a Volga car, as the supreme luxury, one of those very luxurious Soviet cars. So you take those back, and you sell that. That is how people operate, they were criminals all along, and I don't know, these people were looked at as somehow better in this set up in our minds. Because people were scared and afraid and, you know, I don't know, early, early 20th century capitalists would do great in Soviet. If they could manage to stay under the radar. Which is just interesting. And you know, when, when the economy collapses and when when you've been living under a prison system, you have these two types of people. One who just do their job and the other who just don't even understand that they have been paid in free lunch company money vouchers. Because, you know, rubles aren't worth anything. They're, they're worth, after the collapse of the economy, they're worth exactly how much they're worth. And that's terrible. And the only people who knew how capitalism worked were these criminal types, were these ex-communists and these smugglers and stealers and, and thieves and these people. So we were just stuffed into a criminal era of a private sort right after we were stuffed into a criminal era from the communism. When when seeking answers about how all of this impacted Soviet identity, how all of this worked, I looked at the fact that the glorious general question about, you know, what the Soviet identity actually was, I mean... To think about what the impact of gulags and the KGB was on the Soviet people's look of themselves and of how our views of ourselves have changed and what's left for us now, you have to look at how the Soviets viewed themselves and there's nothing on this. This identity implies some sort of individualism. They, they, are, they have a bunch of talks about the communist man, but it's all collect, collectivist nonsense essentially. We all were just a mindless mob, a group to be stuffed together. People who are just nothing more than cattle, who, who could be shot and moved and whatever, and everyone knew this. And they ca can't get the, out of this mentality even now for a lot of reasons. Like I said, this is heavy. This is like digging through my own brain, picking my own brain apart and trying to figure what to make of this. And it's definitely... Not easy. One thing that is surely interesting about our identity is that it still follows some prison terms from, from all this KGB and Gulag stuff. They, they have this uh, interesting saying, both in Latvian and in Russian, Fears, that means respects you. Basically, if you can manage someone to get to fear you a lot, then that, that means... That means, you know, that the other person respects you. If you beat up your wife bloody so that, you know, she's afraid of you when you come home, that means, that means she respects you because she's afraid to get beaten. That was a default thing. My, I remember my, my stepfather, when, when he was alive, he used to raise me that way. He used to tell me that was normal when I was a kid. I thought that was normal. You know, if you can intimidate someone, that means they respect you. All the respectful people are those from whom people are terribly afraid even though they're complete criminals. Every risky move was like, oh no, no, you might get punished, you might end bad. But if you can make someone be afraid of you, then, then you're a respectable person. 
and all the Slavic squatting culture, you know, all the memes and you know, that's also a prison culture. So I don't know. We were left with the prison doors open. So this is how we grew up here. This is how we became who we are. This is why I'm making this podcast and why I'm apologizing all the time. These are the scars of my people. These are the scars of a lot of people in Eastern Europe. The Hungarians have their own scars. Czechs have their own scars. Slovenians, Slovaks, Poles, Lithuanians, Estonians. All of them. Moldavians, Romanians. Pick any nation of our great and wonderful and splendid Eastern Bloc. We all have our pains here. We all are different, and mostly not because of our own choice, but because terrible things did happen to us. And we never experienced the big boom of of the 70s, the big economic growth of capitalism that Western Europe and the United States experienced, which is apparently why the liberalism policies are on the rise today, because you guys can live happily and you've acquired this level of prosperity, at least so the experts think in my country when they discuss the reasons why why we over here are way more conservative and sometimes sometimes seem weird to other people in the Western Europe, but it is how it is. We we can't choose our own history, we can just learn from it and I I hope you have understood some things while listening to these series about gulags and punishments, because it's a collective punishment. It has always been a collective punishment. It's essentially called punishment for the reason that my people were punished. For being there, for living, for not being as perfect and as devoted and as crazy as Soviets had intended to. There was no workers' paradise. There was just this bleak existence in a prison country. Especially once you knew that the Soviets had just killed a lot of your family members. And in January, we'll start talking about the Russian Revolution, starting from the very basics up up to up to Khrushchev's era where we started, with a lot of specials in between. But that's the general direction where we're going. I'm just gonna finish up with the with the the 90s episodes, and then we're gonna do some other stuff. Don't don't worry, this podcast is gonna go on because. A lot of the material that I'm talking about is not even not even available yet. I mean, in two years, some materials from the archives, which I tend to read, will only become available and become no longer a secret. Demystified, so to speak. A lot, of, a lot of these things are still kept in archives. A lot of important documents are still there, and there's no access to historians to look at them. And there is no justice. There is no happy ending here. There is no great success or anything. And and while a lot of people in Western Europe are Eurosceptical, well, we here are quite positive about the European Union. Somewhat. Because what else can we do? I mean, you guys in the West have a choice. You, Britain can afford to leave the EU. We can't. Other countries can can choose not to do their NATO obligations and not to pay their 2%. Well, we can't. 
So we have this written in the law and we're moving. Since we joined NATO, we have been steadily improving our defense budget and payments to NATO every year. And we're going to hit the 2% next year. We can't otherwise. It's like we're stuck again. We're just there. We have to do what we have to do. And, you know, Hungary or Poland, they have more population. They have bigger militaries. They, they have a bit more wedge room there, but they're as traumatized as we are. We're even smaller than they are, and we're, like, right next to Russia. So this is this is how it's all been going here. And I don't know, I'll be discussing the early 90s and what happened just after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the next episode, next regular episode, because the next episode is going to be a special gift of those people who like grand strategy games, namely Europe Universalis, Crusader Kings, Euro, uh, and Hearts of Iron. But that's a hush-hush surprise. But in general, yeah. I don't know. If if this show has been so far for me, the explanation of my people and telling my story, then, then actually this series just combines it all, collects in one piece, and I don't even know what to say at the end. I sound like a dreadful amateur who hasn't prepared, but that is not the case. It's just that all I can do is wave my arms around and say, well, here we are. Here we are, and I don't know. I don't hold any specific angry political views towards anyone or or hold any grudges or something. But this is why I'm so pro-free speech, so pro-debates, pro-different arguments, letting other people speak and trying to be neutral about all of this. Because I've been raised in a society where that was a value. I have learned to appreciate the fact that I can speak my opinion freely. And the fact that anyone can do that, that is one of the most important things to me. And that's one positive thing I can tell you about how the people in these areas think and the scars left us. Because that is exactly the thing that we missed. Freedom. Not a freedom of doing something great or whatever. No, the freedom of thinking. The freedom of speech. And I would like to finish this episode, even though it's a bit shorter than usual, but again, I have to finish this terribly hard series with with something that makes sense. And the only thing that makes sense at the moment is just to tell you Don't forget, dear listeners, that you are free. And you are only as free as that guy over there whom you might disagree with, whom you hate, who voted for the wrong candidate that you didn't like, whatever. You are as free as he is. As long as he is that free. There is no being freer than the other group. Either you're all free, or none of you is free. And that's the thing. It's a bit of moralizing, but that's all I can give you tonight. I hope you learned something from this show, and uh, I promise you, next next episodes are going to be a bit more more easier and a bit more peaceful. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv. And we'll
will rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.